Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and boy, do we have a treat for you today. For many of you, you remember one of the most listened to podcasts in the Driving Change Podcast archives was that of Dr. Rick Rigsby. You all know Dr. Rick from the Lessons of a Third Grade Dropout, which at this point, it's got to be a, a, a trillion views. I'm sure it was like 300 million at one point. It's probably a trillion views. Uh, we talked a lot in the first episode that when he was on about his, his book, Afraid to Hope. We got into a lot of those topics. Um, I will tell you, you know, Rick is a friend. He's somebody that I admire. He's somebody I look up to. He's, he's won awards across the board. We could go down the list of everything he's done and accomplished in his life from being a chaplain to being a professor to being a motivational speaker. But the thing I really want you to get, and, and by the way, if you've never gone out and listened to Rick's podcast, How You Living, uh, it's one of my favorites. I listen to it regularly. And uh, he, he's just an effective communicator. And he teaches us things that really gives us a little bit of that introspection. And now you hear me talk a lot about taking information into motivation, but not just leaving it there, turning it into activation and application. So I couldn't be more excited to have you back on again. So Dr. Rick, thank you so much for being back on for part two of the Driving Change podcast. Oh, Jeff, what a thrill. What a privilege. And, you know, thank you for that nice introduction. I have to tell you, I was thinking that the the only people that really, really appreciate and love introductions are our moms. And I wish mine could just come down from heaven just for 30 seconds to listen to that introduction. She would go crazy. She'd be calling in right now. Can I get in? Can I talk to my son? Can I talk to Jeff? Can I meet Jeff? <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think uh, you know you and I were talking in the pre-show just about how things how things have changed over the last 2 years, but also in the more things change, the, I think the more they stay the same when it comes to human behavior. Um, yes. the, the more the 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 pressure of 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 outside forces pushes in on us, the more it reveals I think a lot of our character and in a lot of ways some of maybe the blind spots in our lives that that uh Maybe we need to work on a little bit. And I was uh, one of the first things I wanted to dive in with you is number one, how you doing? You know, we two years of this pandemic now, and we're all learning how to live nor in, in a way that's different than maybe we had before. How how are you personally doing, and what are some of the trends that you've seen in your life? Well, first of all, I appreciate that. Uh, thankfully, we're we're doing all well. Uh, I, I have four children, three grandchildren. Our family's doing well. We've had a couple that have had COVID. On a very sad note. Uh, as a pastor, Jeff, I've never done more funerals uh, than I have in the, the last year. And um, uh, uh, e even in the midst of that grief, though, I will remind those families, including my own family members, that there's always a silver lining. There's always something that we can learn in the midst of grief if we're willing to keep going, which is what I had to do after losing my first wife 26 years ago. I think the thing that I'm trying to glean from the uncertainty of the last 20 months is this. Nothing can promote personal growth like a season of unevenness, like a season of uncertainty. Can, can I explain what I'm talking about just for a moment? Please. You know, during times of certainty, which is good, 
you, what you have is redundancy that leads to predictable results. Now, there are certain arenas that we want that. If I'm flying to see you, Jeff, to Ohio, I don't want the captain of the airplane to say, we're going to try to land in Cleveland. <laughs> I want redundancy that leads to predictable results. But think about it in this way for a moment. In times of certainty, we tend to lax. We tend to take our guard down. We can, we can tend to lose that startup hunger. Uh, I, I am seeing, I was seeing businesses that were at the top of their game. When, when companies call me and you in, oftentimes it's a celebratory few days. Uh, we are speaking to their, to their top achievers or to their sales forces, so on and so forth. And folks are celebrating and excited. I often tell those same folks to pay attention to companies and individuals that have just won championships and the elite athletes aren't so filled with celebration that they don't see tomorrow. I'm talking about a Jerry Rice, who just two days after a Super Bowl is caught by Steve Young at the 49ers facility running sprints. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about watching this, this um, current superstar speed skater, uh, Nathan Chen, who you can even see it in his eyes, saying to the world, where's the next opportunity? Where's the next mountain? Nothing Nothing, absolutely nothing fails like success. And so what I have tried to share with companies and corporations and individuals is simply this, allow the uncertainty of this season to, to grow you by pushing past certainty. Because when you have certainty, it, it invites entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. That suggests anything made up of a physical matter is in the process of decay and eventual chaos. So we want to realize that there is one positive here, and that is an opportunity to, to really grow. I want to give you an example of what I mean by how uncertainty can bring the best out. I was thinking recently about a uh, uh, Monday night football game back in 2003. Nothing special about this game between the Raiders and the Packers. What was unusual occurred the day before the Monday night game. On that Sunday, Brett Favre, who was the Green Bay Packers quarterback at the time, his father had a massive heart attack and died. Now Brett has to make this decision. Do I fly to Oakland with my team and do I play? He answered in the affirmative to both cases. Not only did he play, but Jeff, you may remember, he had the game of his life. And at the end of the game, he made this statement with tears in his eyes, with his wife, Deanne, by his side. He said, this had to be my best game. My point exactly. Nothing can bring out greatness. Nothing can bring out that untapped, uh, that that un, unquestionable uh potential, like a time of uncertainty, because we place demands upon ourselves during times of uncertainty that we never would during a time of certainty. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And we see it, I think, all around us now and how our, our leaders are leading or not, how our politicians are, are leading or not, how yes. across the board you can see. Um, the interesting thing I love your perspective on is <clears throat> sometimes in times of uncertainty, especially in heightened seasons of stress and uncertainty, some people activate in full-on self-preservation mode and start to claw at their own gain, or others yeah. activate into their full potential mode and how they're lifting up those around them who maybe don't see their full potential. Right. You can see it happening right now on both sides. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? 
You know, you're a former football guy. I'm a former football guy. And a lot of the athletes that are listening, regardless of the sport, can relate to what I'm about to say. That, 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 that crisis doesn't create a leader. Crisis reveals the need for a leader. And what's interesting is I remember this, especially in my role on the coaching staff at Texas A&M. I was, I was the character coach and the chaplain, but I had a front row seat to this. During a crisis at crunch time, in the middle of an intense moment where one play can make all the difference in the world, you see some players that would just disappear. They'd go to the end of the bench. You, you looked around, hey, I need a quarterback. I, I need a fullback. I need a, I, need a, I need a gunner. And you couldn't find them. But then there was always that one or two. Come on, Jeff. There was always that one or two literally tugging at the shirt of the coach saying, put me in. Give me the ball. And so, yes, your assessment is spot on. Cream always rises to the top. And in times of uncertainty, I don't care if you have a staff of 12 or a staff of 2,000, it reveals your superstars. You know, nobody should have to motivate you. I'm reading this book that I can't stand. I hate it. And, and at the same time, I love it. It's Tim Grover's work, Relentless, from good to great to unstoppable. I hate it because he makes hash and motivation what we do. And we happen to disagree, and that's okay. I love it because Grover says at the end of the day, you gotta do something. And what happens in a time of uncertainty is you're right. Some look for the silo. Others say, bring it on. Bring it on. And so in this season of uncertainty, we've seen it in our staff. It, it, it really does illuminate what's inside of an individual. It illuminates what's inside of an organization. It, it exposes culture, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think that's so 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 powerful. And so I'm looking around, and there's people that'll fall into, if you're listening out there today, maybe you've fallen into a season of complacency because uh, maybe fear has put you in the chains through this pandemic, and you've allowed external forces to try to tell you something that you started to believe, and our beliefs tend to influence our behaviors, which tend to lead to some patterns, which those patterns turn into habits. And so right. if you rewind that, that movie backwards to the belief and you think about, am I operating at my full potential today? Not just for my accomplishments, because at the end of the day, you and I can accomplish a million things on an individual level and our tombstone is still gonna say the same thing. Yeah. And, and it ain't gonna yeah. be a list of our accomplishments, right? So it's really the, the legacies we leave are the impact we have with our gifts on others. And what That's I'm right. fascinated by from a leadership standpoint right now in this season is watching the leaders who are rising up to, to support others in their potential as opposed to the leaders who are not just kind of cowering but, but almost building a little mini kingdom around what they want. And it's gonna, it, you know it's going to implode. It's just not how we're wired, right? We're wired for community and for lifting others up. And so it's just fascinating to me to watch uh, we've, in my lifetime, I think probably in yours as well, we're not that far apart, we've never had a global event that hit everybody the same. So you're seeing cultures, leaders across cultures, all experiencing the same impact of the same event, having similar reactions, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you're spot on, Jeff. The, I, the distinction that I choose to make is this. Some leaders impress, some leaders impact. 
you, you, you know, I, I just, I, and, and let me just make this point. You know, those leaders that are building kingdoms unto themselves, as you said, and I think that's an apt description. They're, they're leaders that, that just impress. For them, leadership is all about uh, reigning and authority and ruling. That's not necessarily a leader. Uh, a, a leader impacts. And, and, and I really believe that the greatest, greatest, greatest leaders among us are those that impact others by inspiring them to be even greater. And so that first camp, those who just impress, those who are just leading based on title and authority, you know, they're always working on their legacy. But those other leaders who grow others around them, they're working on their impact. Well, what's the difference? Well, I really believe that that legacy True, true legacy is not a bad thing to work on, but legacy is how you want to be remembered. But impact is why people won't forget you. Mm. And, and that's, that's a huge, huge difference. I want to be the kind of leader that inspires others. I want people to follow me, not because they have to, Jeff, but because they want to. Oh, baby. You talk about the why. Unpack that for a little bit, right? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't want my staff working for me because they have to. I want us working together because we want to change the world. I am not interested in creating siloed leadership where I'm creating my own kingdom because I know that there is a shelf life on Rick Rigsby. I'm, you know what I think about a lot? And maybe it's because I, I turned 66 uh, this week. But but what I think about a lot is how am I empowering that next generation, not just next generation of Rigsby's, but how am I empowering the next generation of Bloomfields? How am I taking that message from your papa and my dad and impacting people in Uganda, impacting people in Trinidad, impacting people in Tiffin, Ohio, come on, impacting people in Chico, California. And I think the way I can do it is this, the difference that I see between the, the leadership of just building our individual kingdoms and literally impacting is influence. Yes, there's tremendous advantage to technology. Yes, there's global expansion that is that is abounding. Yes, we're, we're seeing all wonderful types of new innovations on the horizon, but nothing gives a person a greater advantage than growing in individual influence. I think John Maxwell was spot on when he said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, so true. All right, I've got a phrase I'm gonna throw at you. I've been playing around with this for a while and I want your reaction to it because you'll be the perfect person to unpack it. The intensity of one's belief drives the consistency of one's behaviors. Wow. What do you think of that? Unpack that. What do you, do, do you agree it. with it? I, oh, absolutely. I want you to say it one more time, Jeff. So the intensity of one's belief in anything will drive the consistency of one's behavior. Absolutely. I have two examples. I have Martin Luther King and I have myself. Let me start with myself, the intensity of one's belief. You know, I've always said set goals that scare you, but I never set goals that scared me until a couple years ago. And that was when I weighed 404 pounds and I set a goal to weigh 220. The intensity of one's beliefs will drive that consistency. I set a goal that scared me. Today, before going on your show, I weighed, I'm at 284, from 404 to 284. Come on. 
I've got 60 pounds to go, but let me answer your question, baby. Oh, I'm so excited I need a seatbelt right now. When I set that goal, oh, by the way, those of you listening, if your goals for the new year don't scare you, tear them up. They're useless. Come on. Uh, that goal that I set at 404 to get to 220, you know what it meant? It meant it was so intense that it forced me to be consistent. So all of a sudden now, I've got to take these basics, reevaluate my daily basics, because it's those daily basics that drive me toward my goal. I had to be so intense. How did I do that? I had to put hands and feet on intensity. You get up at four in the morning. When everybody else is sleeping, you do what everybody else won't do. You drink more water than, than you can possibly even imagine. You start changing your food sources. You start making better decisions. Perhaps most importantly, especially in a pandemic where you're sitting on your butt for 12 hours, I started reading Blue Zones. Guess what those folks that live to 100 do? They're moving every 20 minutes. They're replacing the automobile with exercise. I move every 20 minutes. What's my point? The intensity of the goal that I made really does drive my consistency. Can I, can I just mention? I know that my answers are too long for you. No, this but, is great. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm a firm believer. Will you text me that, by the way? I will. And I'll, promise, I'll quote you when I'm on TV. I won't say, as so many of my friends, as I was saying the other day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, thinking about, I'm thinking about somebody like Martin Luther King. Just think about the exigence for a moment. You know, you're getting death threats every day from the time you enter into the fray, which is December 1st, 1955, when a woman refuses to give up her seat, until the day you're assassinated, 4 April 1968, shortly after 6 o'clock, on a balcony at the Lorraine Hotel you, in Memphis, Tennessee. You are dealing with the vestiges and the ugliness of, of, of a kind of hatred, the likes of which would just drive most of us into a corner and hide, right? Against that backdrop, the intensity of what he believed in was so strong, he refused to quit. What did that build? Consistency. First with the people in Montgomery and the Montgomery Improvement Association, Albany, uh, where, they where civil rights workers suffered their worst defeat. Most people quit after your worst defeat. They had no money. They had no volunteers. But what do they do? They limp into Birmingham, which literally turns the trajectory of the, mo of the movement uh, toward justice and breaking down chains of segregation. Jeff, that statement is so powerful because not only is it true, but it's very pragmatic. I've given you two examples of how I've seen first in my life, and you see it in the lives of others who stay committed. The critical question is not that they stay committed. The critical question is why? And I believe it is the intensity of the belief. You know, I study a lot of this behavioral psychology and the neuroscience piece of this, and the concept of cognitive dissonance, and not to nerd out to the audience, but the idea that when your behaviors don't align to your beliefs, it creates dissonance in your brain, you know, biologically. And, and it, got me, it got me to thinking about this over the past couple of years as we've tried to coach people for high performance, whether it's in business or athletics, it doesn't matter. And so it really comes back to, if I'm not demonstrating the behaviors consistently that produces a pattern of that, those behaviors, then there was something wrong with the belief. And either the way the brain works is I either have to change the belief or I start to justify 
why my behavior doesn't align with the belief because the brain has to come back into resonance, right, to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. And so I started looking at this for my own self personally and then our clients and everyone else is saying, well, if I'm not getting the results that I want in any given area of my life, I'm not demonstrating the, the habits and the patterns and the behaviors, which means then there's a belief that's out of alignment. And I've either justify why I don't believe it anymore or I'd have, I don't have the right belief. Yeah. And, and evaluating that, that, those beliefs, right, in our lives and what do we really care about? What do we believe in? And then do our behaviors line up with the, with the patterns we need to get the results to, to really live that belief out? You know who you have to get on your podcast? A man by the name of James Clear. Has he been on your podcast? No, he hasn't. We love, love an introduction. James Clear has a best-selling book. I want your, your listeners to, 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 to look at called Atomic, Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits, yep. Are, you're familiar with it? Yep. And so in, and just in case your, your readers are not, I will just tell you, he, his father was a, a, a minor league ball player. James Clear wanted to be a major league baseball player. He's playing a high school game. He's in the on-deck circle waiting to hit. The batter swings and loses his grip on the bat. The bat hits Clear. He has significant brain injury. He's airlifted to a nearby hospital. But look at the silver lining. He has to teach himself by making small habits, how to process and how to remember all over again. And his book is absolutely fascinating. Here's the part that you just reminded me of. I would justify buying apples at the store once a week. Why? Because it made me feel healthy. <laughs> they would go in the crisper and they would rot and then I would throw them away. But it's okay because I'd already justified the process of buying them. But you convinced yourself that that was a behavior that aligned to the belief that was going to make you healthier, even though you really weren't actually doing anything about it, right? You're right. Now, I want you to add some more words to what I'm about to tell you because I think it really brings out your point. I read James Clear's book and he says, put the apples on the island where they're visible. Right. My apple consumption went up 100%. Go ahead. Yeah. No, and I think that that, you know, for me and I look at yeah, you know, it's it's you know, I'm on the I'm on the backside of 50 now, right? And you look at your life and you're moving into the stage of I coach people for a living on how to be high performers and get the most out of their life and walk in their purpose and be great communicators and all that. But what's the junk in my brain trunk that's still preventing me, right, from 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 living out not just that I don't feel like I'm living my purpose, but how do I get better so that yeah. I can help other people get better? And then it always goes back to those, what are those beliefs and are they leading to behaviors that are consistently creating patterns that lead to habits? Because there's yeah. neural networks being created in your That's brain, exactly right? right? I mean, you literally yeah. are rewiring your brain when you do that. So I just love the concept. Well, can I just can I just add a big amen to what you just said? Then these habits consist create the more consistent habits. So guess what I decided to do during the pandemic? Couldn't go to the gym, so I, I buy a, an exercise bike, a stationary exercise bike, but I don't put it anywhere. I asked my wife it if it was okay to put it in our bedroom. She said, sure. I put it in my bedroom. It was a coat rack for a couple of weeks, but guess what? I kept passing it over and over. I eventually started getting on it. Now it is a daily part of my routine. That, 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 those patterns from habits that form consistency. Isn't it amazing? But just to your point, the first couple of weeks, I wasn't doing what I'm preaching. Right. And, and but, but, but you know what was interesting, Jeff? I kept passing the bike every day. I got to the point that I could no longer ignore it. Right. 
Well, because your brain's in dissonance. You then have to either justify why you don't need to lose weight. Yeah. Or you yeah. got to get on that bike. <laughs> <laughs> or you got to sell the bike and get it out of your yeah. view. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing to you how, how common sense rooted neuroscience really is? How pragmatic it really is? Yeah, I just said this to the group in Vegas I was speaking to this week, is that the brain is the most complex machine slash organ that God ever created, yet it's not that complicated. Yeah. It's the most yeah. complex, but yet it really, from a human behavior standpoint, is not that complicated. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I know you've got your PhD in communication. The guys on my team have PhDs in communication, and I just love that the idea that we, to, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, and we talk about this at Every client we work with, every keynote I start with is the number one determining success factor of any organization or any individual is their ability to communicate effectively. Yes. Uh, nothing else matters. You can have the great strategy, great people, great culture, great fill in the blank, great products. But if you can't communicate effectively in your life, all is lost. Yes. And one of the keys to great communication, which I'm not excellent at, I'm trying to get better at, because I have a belief that good listening <laughs> leads to being a better communicator. What can you help the group? Because you're great at this, the concept of, of listening and really hearing, like listening to hear with the intent to understand as opposed to the intent to respond, as I believe our, uh, there's a Covey, I think, that said that, right? What, what's, your, what are your, what's your wisdom around the idea of the art of listening relative to communication effectiveness? I'm so glad you asked. Cicero, that, that great Roman rhetor, who, by the way, got paid for talking, said on one occasion that listening is the most important of all communicative arts. And, and I want to approach this from two perspectives, uh, uh, how we can be better listeners and then how we can uh, get other people to listen to us. First, how can we be better listeners? It, it's really easy. An understanding and an acknowledgement that that listening is not hearing. We think just because we we can hear a sound that we're a listener. Hearing is passive. Hearing is automatic. Hearing is like hearing a melody. Listening is hearing is listening to the words that are, are sung in the in in the song. So how do you move from there? Here's a very pragmatic way. Put the theory to the side for a moment. I have plenty of theory, but put the theory to the side. Here's a very pragmatic way. Reduce your personal insatiable desire to respond. In other words, drop the self-righteous attitude. Uh, for one moment, say, it's not about Rick. I really want to hear what Jeff is saying. How, how can I encourage that? Let me back that statement up. I really want to listen to what Jeff is saying. How, how can I encourage that? I want to listen so intently that I can actually paraphrase what he just said. I just practiced that with you in that new quote, by the way, Jeff, that you mentioned. I want to paraphrase. I will paraphrase that quote today multiple times. Listen to this. 50% of what you hear, you forget just like that. Of the remaining 50%, you lose 38% over the next 24 hours. What does that say to you? That says to us that we're not really engaged in active, transformational, intentional listening. We're in that hearing mode most of the time. What will cause us to engage when, when we take ownership of our own behavior? I'm going to paraphrase 
what you are going to say. And I'm going to paraphrase it two or three times. Jeff, what you are saying is that there is a causal link between intensity and consistency. Jeff, what you are saying is that there is an inextricable connection between intensity and consistency. Second, I'm not going to be so quick to respond. Now, I get a dose of this every time I get into an argument with my wife. I call those times, times of intense fellowship. I wanna just get, hey baby, I'm gonna tell you my point of view to the point that it is clouding the corridors of my mind when it comes to any input and listening to what you, I'm working on my response right now. I'm, I'm an attorney in a court of law working on my retort as opposed to listening to your defense. There's that self-righteous attitude again, Jeff. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of, of, of stupidity. <laughs> and so you have to figure out a way to paraphrase and then drop that ego so that so that you are literally saying it is more important for me to listen than to respond and you can't do that if it's all about you let me change the let me turn the tide for just a second I, I work with companies and individuals on what I'm about to tell you next and I didn't learn it through four degrees I didn't learn it in graduate school I learned what I'm about to tell you by going to the doctor's office. If you want people to listen to you, stop blaming them for not listening. Rather, give them a reason for which to listen. So every year, Jeff, just like you, I go to my doctor's office, I get the physical. Uh, the doctor comes into my office. Mine is Agnes Kenra. She comes in and Dr. Kenra says, Rick, I have your results. And just like Dino, that dinosaur on the Flintstones, I'll go, ooh. Now, what did Dr. Kenra do? She gave me a reason for which to listen. You know what it reminds me of? Years ago, there was this tire company. I won't mention them, but the tire company uh, said, we make these, these rugged tires for the rugged men who drive on the rugged road. Well, guess what their market research indicated when sales sagged? That men weren't the ones buying the tires in the 80s. It was women. So they changed their entire they changed their entire ad campaign. And what you saw a year or so later was simply B-roll of a baby sitting in a tire floating on a body of water with the voiceover saying, would you trust your precious cargo to just any tire? Francis Bacon said, here comes the theory, the duty and office of effectively communicating is to provide reason to imagination for the better moving of the will, application. You want people to listen to you, give them a reason. Here's the problem. Most of us don't place a demand upon ourselves to be an active listener. And most of us don't place a demand upon ourselves to give people a reason for which to listen. You know what we what we do? We, we default to the complaining mode. I don't know why they won't listen to me. I don't understand how I can get through to them. I do. You're not giving them a reason. What's a reason? Urgency. What's a, what's a reason? I, to, to be quite honest with you, 25 years of teaching on the university level taught me here are two great reasons when you're communicating. First reason, uh, allowing people to reminisce. Second reason, creating an opportunity where the brain can receive new knowledge. Let me go to that first one for a moment. 
All I wanted my civil rights students at Texas A&M to remember about 1964 was the Public Accommodations Act, also known as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's all I want them to remember, right? I, I also want them to remember Mississippi Freedom Summer, where Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner were brutally murdered as a part of Freedom Summer. So I want them to remember those two things. To set that year up, Jeff, I want to talk about 1964 in a way that they will remember. So I tell stories. I'm giving them a reason to remember by allowing them an opportunity to reminisce. So I'll say 64 started rather innocently. I asked my mom and dad if I could stay up and watch this variety show called The Ed Sullivan Show. That night it was going to be a really big show. And I found out that these this this group from from England was going to be on and they had Prince Prince Edward suits and and they had they had soup bowl haircuts. Now, class, what were the what was the name of that group? And my class is going crazy. This is 90s, 2000s. They're saying, oh, um, new kids on the block. No, no, no. Um, what was the name of that group? Oh, we know um, the Rolling Stones. No, it was the Beatles. I staged this whole thing. I've just given them a reason for which to listen. It's called allowing them to reminisce. So in 10 seconds, you want to be a better listener. You want to grow your listening a component overnight, try two things. Get so invested in Jeff that I'm going to listen for the intention of paraphrasing as best I can two or three times. I'm going to, second, drop my ego and, and, and not have such an insatiable desire to want to respond. You want to give people that are around you uh, uh, and, and, and you want to see them listen to you with a greater intensity, give them a reason for which to listen. Oh, baby, I'm passionate about this. If we had time, I'll, I'd tell you an exercise that I use in almost every single event. it only take 30 seconds. Can you give me 30 seconds? Let's do it. Let's do it. I, I will quote Chuck Knoll on, on purpose. Hold on, hold on. We're a Bengals team here. We don't do Steelers. I'm sorry, go okay. ahead. For, for, for Chuck Knoll, we'll let it happen. We'll, we'll let it happen for Chuck Knoll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear you. I'm Bengals this week too, baby. Anyway, uh, Chuck Knoll, former coach, Pittsburgh Steelers, said on one occasion, and I'll say this to thousands or to hundreds or to 10, whoever, however big the audience is, I'll quote him. Champions are champions, not because they do extraordinary things, but because they do ordinary things better than anybody else. Now, Jeff, watch this. I'm using this in the context of challenging leaders to execute basics, really to develop patterns that grow their capacity for that which they want, right? Guess what I'm noticing? This is the early stages of the speech. They're still evaluating me. They're not listening. They're hearing. And they're looking at me. Oh, yeah. So guess what I do? Ten minutes later, I get a volunteer. And I have that volunteer come on stage and I'll say, Melissa, 10 minutes ago, oh, I'll make this point. I'll make the point that 50% of what you hear, you forget just like that. Of the remaining 50%, you lose 38% over the next 24 hours. Let me explain. I need a volunteer. Somebody volunteer. Melissa, come on up. Melissa, share with the audience that great Chuck Knoll quote from just 10 minutes ago. 99.999% of the time, it's, it's met with shock, fear, and I just don't remember. And then I say these words, Melissa, stay right here on stage. Let me talk for a few minutes. And in the next five minutes, you're going to nail this quote. 
And all I do is remind people that we have to give them a reason. The reason I just gave Melissa, urgency. She's not thinking about lunch. She's not thinking about the cocktail party that night. And so then I lead the audience in saying the quote together a couple of times, have some fun, and almost every time, a Melissa will come back up in five minutes and nail it. Two points, Jeff. Number one, place a demand on your people to listen. Number two, give them a reason to listen. I love it. That's so good. Um, the the thing that you made me thought think about as you're going through that is the the idea about reducing your ego. I know, like for, for most of us, we can make excuses as to why we're not a great listener. Because look, I run a company. I got a million things on my mind, and I don't have time to do everything. And so I, I'm not active in caring about what the person I'm talking to actually cares about. So it, we almost become lifestyle dictators in the way we communicate. We just expect that if words are coming out of my mouth, it must add value to somebody. I need somebody to snap to it and take action. And, and I think what you're getting at with the ego piece is so important. It's gonna lead me to my next question. I, I know, and we talk about this with our clients, it's, you know, number one secret we found through all the neuroscience research, there's one secret to make the person you're talking to believe you care about them. Do you know what it is? And everyone looks at it like, oh, what is it? Um, you actually have to care about them. <laughs> and it's not really a secret at all. And so, but what that means is, I have to, in the moment, am I talking about something that Rick cares about? Because if I do, you will be listening because your brain is biologically built to activate around the things that you care about. Your attention span will be attracted to the things that you care about. I loved your twist on the reminiscing piece because that's part of the storytelling that creates a little bit of curiosity, which leads me to my next question, which is about questions. Because I think one of the things that we're teaching and learning uh, at Brain Trust is a great communicator who's a great listener, and this is a Ted Lasso thing we picked up in the old Ted Lasso, is curiosity. And if you have a curiosity about the people you're communicating with, you'll ask great questions. And therefore, you'll be able to position information in a way that's relevant to them. So how do you bridge curiosity and asking great questions as part of the ability to be a great listener? You believe in ghosts, Jeff? <laughs> I do. But first of all, ghosts have to believe in themselves. <laughs> you're pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, we need a good Ted Lasso quote on the episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the most undervalued aspects of communication in a, in a highly entertainment-oriented and highly superficial-driven society is the ability to ask questions and to ask the right questions uh, driven by curiosity. I have a couple of thoughts. A third grade dropout daddy taught me, don't be a know-it-all, son. He said, he said, son, you'd rather be curious than certain. I have a picture in my mind right now that I just read this story about uh, Kobe Bryant, a young Kobe Bryant. He's standing up uh, next to Michael Jordan, during a game, at the foul line, they're standing next to each other, and Kobe is peppering the veteran Jordan with questions. And it was annoying to Michael early in his career. Then Kobe starts to call him after a Laker game on the West Coast, 
He calls Chicago with a two-hour time difference. And so Michael is getting these calls at two in the morning. Like on a screen, do you go left foot first or right foot first? And which foot do you lead with? It developed a friendship. It developed a close friendship. It developed uh, a brotherhood. I remember at Kobe's funeral, Michael said, this was my little brother. It started with curiosity. Jeff, I'm going to tell you something, brother. I am absolutely amazed at the lack of ability in this society that we choose to have that drives us to ask such shallow, superficial questions. Not only that, just for kicks and giggles, I would challenge the leaders. From time to time, ask your people a question and look at the lack of depth that comes with the answer, if there is an answer at all. So let's get back to the back end of that. How do we change that? Uh, there is nothing to me like curiosity to drive a well-crafted question. I think there are two other elements though. There must be relevance and there must be something you mentioned earlier. There has to be not just relevance, but a relevance that connects to them. You know, knowing who you're talking to is really important. And it's so basic that so many people, a lot of speakers forego this. You have to know your audience. It, it was Dale Carnegie, I believe, who said that people don't care until they know how much you care. And I think that's really important. It, I believe it was Dale Carnegie. It, it might it might have been um, Zig Ziglar, but one one of those two said that. But the point the point is, relevance only occurs when there is a connection on the other side. John Maxwell said, "Everybody communicates, but very few people connect." Here's the glue that will cause your questions to connect. Am I asking the question because I want to impress, or do I really want to learn? Uh, what what did you say, John Wooden, former coach, UCLA? It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Mm, that's it. Uh, sec second, is my question relevant, not just to me, but to that person in as much as what that person is experiencing, has experienced, or will experience? Do you know what one of my favorite audiences to talk to on a weekly basis? The five or six widowers, widows and widowers. That, that I have the privilege of, of just encouraging at various stages in their journey. Uh, it, I never signed up for this, but being a widower, uh, you know, I, I can relate. Yep. Uh, I have them at different stages. One of, my, one of my friends, his wife died about a year ago. He just texted me and said these words, Rick, I, I've just watched a television show and laughed for the first time in nine months or wow. six months. And, and, and the, the point is this. Now, I could ask questions that feature Rick. I could ask questions that feature brain trust. But what about questions like this? Talk to me right now. Tell, I, this is what I want you to do, friend. I want you to contrast uh, the stage you were when she first died and tell me about the stage where you are right now, very specifically when did you start to notice a change? Get, get, guess what the most important words are to you, Jeff? Jeff Bloomfield. Right. Guess what people want to talk about themselves? The art of conversation is really easy. And it often starts just like this. Tell me your story, Jeff. 
What's going on in your world, Jeff? Do you realize that when we were off the air, do you realize the first thing you said to me? Rick, how you doing? Rick, how you been? Man, I love me. <laughs> I want to talk about myself. <laughs> right. and, and people come up to me all the time and say, I just, I'm just not a conversationalist. No, you're choosing not to be. Right. We were born to connect. We were born to connect. We were born to connect. Walk into an antique store. Guess what sign you see? You don't see a sign that says, do not spit. You see a sign that says, do not touch. We were born to touch one another with our words, with our actions. So, yes, yeah. relevance, curiosity drives the question. I don't even know if I answered your question. Well, no, it's, it's really good. I think that what we've been really focusing on a lot is motivation, is having people reflect yeah. What's you know we work with you know this we, we you and I both get to speak to a lot of companies and many times it's a lot of sales teams. We work a lot on the client work with a lot of sales organizations and everybody has this thing called a needs analysis. And whenever yeah. I look at their needs analysis, I almost always say, "Well, this is what you need." <laughs> like this is a, you're right, it is a needs analysis, but if you're going to call it something to your prospect, you should call it an interrogation analysis to them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you've labeled it correctly for you because this is what you need. And, you need, yeah. And if you think about what is the motivation of this question? Is yeah. it because I'm curious and I want to understand something that about yeah. how what you care about? Or is it yeah. I need information from you so that I can advance my agenda? And we have yeah. a we have a picture, Rick, that oh. we show. We have a picture we show, and it's got a it's got a, a, a psychologist or a counselor, a doctor, a lawyer, and a news reporter. All, yeah. And I say, what do these have in common and what, are, what do they have different relative to questions? And eventually somebody gets to it. The, yeah. the counselor and the doctor ask questions that are uncovering information about what you care about. The lawyer and the reporter ask questions to advance their agenda. Yeah. And if you think about it, when you approach a conversation with another human being, are you more of a counselor who's trying to ask questions to advance the other person's agenda? Or are you asking yeah. questions that are just a, the information helps you advance your own? And that's a yes, tough sir. thing, right, from a motivation standpoint. Jeff, it reminds me of a story. I'm, I'm driving my oldest son to the airport who's starting law school back in 2011 or 12. And he says, Dad, just give me one bit of advice that I can hold on to as I fly from Dallas to Portland, Oregon. And I said, son, I want you to be, in the words of your grandfather, more curious than certain. And this is what I mean. Nobody in that graduating class needs to know nor will they be impressed by the fact that you spent the last eight years working as a legislative aide on Capitol Hill. Let them find out for themselves. Do you know, a couple of years later, he said to me, that was some of the best advice because he said, I could have never imagined the power of just staying humble and letting others do the celebrating for you. That was, that was a seminal moment. And it was a moment that I lived in the late 80s. I was an award-winning television reporter. And my dad told me, I said, Daddy, I'm, I'm entering this graduate school. I don't know anything about this arena. He said, stay low, son. Keep yourself small. You know, that was his way, Jeff, of saying, keep yourself humble. Humble, right. Just, just stay low, son. And, and so I... My the, the natural tendency of a Rick Rigsby, of most of us, is to start graduate school by saying, let me tell you all about me. The natural tendency of the first day of law school, I mean, those of, that are privileged, let me, let me just tell you all about my accomplishments and where I've been. And, and, and I think that you lose people. 
Jeff, how many times have you heard a motivational speaker begin a speech by saying this? Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Las Vegas, hello. Let me tell you a little bit about myself and a couple of my best-selling books. As an audience member, I completely tune out and turn off. Glazed over. I, now, you know what I want to hear? Here, here's the best example of what I want to hear. I'm in Austin, Texas one evening. I'm, I'm enjoying an, a, a night in an open-air uh, amphitheater. I'm having a glass of wine and I'm waiting for the blues band to come on. And they said, before the blues band comes on, we have, uh, we have a special guest who's going to talk to you about how to get a million likes. Well, gosh, you know, this was before my my, you know, my, my speech lit up. And so I'm going, a million likes? And this guy says, I have been at rock bottom for most of my life. I'm going to spend 20 minutes and tell you how I got up off the canvas. I not only listened to every word because he gave me a reason for which to listen, he had invaded my world within, with, with, a, with a relevance, with, 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 with such a power that I was so curious at 10 o'clock. I never even listened to the band at night. Went back to my hotel room, started writing, called my wife. You know, we used to go to bed at 9, 9.30. So I'm calling at 10. She's going, hey, you okay, baby? This better I'm be going, good. <laughs> this better be good. And, and, and so I, I just really have to say another big amen to, to what, what you're saying. Boy, if there's any way we can crucify that self-righteous attitude, Jeff, it will help us be a more effective communicator. Harvard Business Review did this study years ago, asked 1,500 knowledge-based people, what is the number one variable that, in, that, that, in, that, that just generates the highest degree of employee satisfaction? And, and without a doubt, the, the employees said, number one is not money, not incentives, not bonuses. It's when... It's when the, the employee senses that forward progress is taking place. So much to Harvard's credit, they come back a year, sample the same demographic, and they say, look at your leaders, and we want to ask you this question. What is it that impedes forward progress on the part of leaders? Three answers. Indecision. Number two, withholding resources for no apparent reason. And number three, a self-righteous attitude. I've studied communication from a theoretical perspective. I've practiced communication for the last 44 years. I've had some ups. I've had many downs. I can tell you this. Nothing, absolutely nothing, devastates the process of co-humanication like a self-righteous attitude. Mm, so good. And I think the root cause of everything that you just said right there, those three things, is fear. And if, yes. if you really dial it back into fear... Uh, and we, you know, we can land the plane with this is, you know, you and I are both men of faith. And, you know, when I don't operate out of my true identity, I operate out of a false identity, which is rooted in fear, which causes me to activate self-preservation, which causes me to be self-righteous, which causes me to communicate from a perspective of me needing to prove myself to those around me so that I get identity from places it doesn't come from. And then now, yeah. you know, when I'm acting that way, I'm actually not walking to my own purpose in my own identity. And that's the belief thing, right? And that's right. Man, it's just so, it's so, it sounds so simple when you say it, but then to walk it out every day is a, is a, is a task, right? But that's why, you know, that's why we have to live in community and have people like you around us to help us motivate us to think about what are those things that are helping us make the biggest impact today. Not, to, not tomorrow, not in a week, not in a month, but what am I doing today? 
to make like that's why I love the title of your podcast, How You Live It. Not you're not asking how you live in next year. You're like, how you yeah. living today? Right now. Right now. That's right. That's right. To that point, for your listeners that struggle with fear, number one, I get it. But number two, like you said, it's crippling. So here's a great anecdote. Uh, I th- I think that uh, replace fear as often as you can on a daily basis with hope. Hope requires three things. Hope requires courage. Winston Churchill said, fear is a reaction. Courage is a choice. Number two, hope requires faith. There's a passage in Holy Scripture that says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Uh, the presupposition is this. You can't even have faith unless you first have hope. And then number three, Hope requires an immediate, decisive response. Make a choice every day to say, yes, I am fearful, but I'm going to replace that fear with an expectation of greater hope. Yeah. You know what I love about that? And this is, this is what we'll put it all bow tie on today. You know what hope really is? It's pre-belief. Yeah, it is. I'm believing that this is going to be come to fruition. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm prefacing a belief to, of something to come. Therefore, it changes my entire countenance, my emotion, my attitude, right? All engages. So, well, I, I know we, we know it's been the last episode, but we can go to rickrigsby.com to learn more about you. What else? I know you got your, your books out there. Where else can folks go to learn more about you or find your resources? Thank you for asking. I think rickrigsby.com. You can buy our books on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, we have two great books, both bestsellers. Afraid to Hope is the recent one. And uh, the, the classic is Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. Hopefully published this year is the third book, The Power of Hope. And uh, all driven at rickrigsby.com. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Instagram. Well, brother, I uh, I think the world of you, you know that. You've become a friend and someone that I look up to, admire. Um, and I just can't thank you enough for being willing to spend this time with our guests, our audience. And uh, you're just, you're, you're, you're one of a kind. We appreciate you. Jeff, I love your mind, but more than that, I love your heart. What an honor to be your friend. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.